0: I am so excited to be bringing you Season 3 of Redica Chimbona. I plan on bringing you all super interesting, thoughtful, and unique content. And this interview that I did with Carol- Professor Carolyn Sufrin is another example of that. She is the author of jail care finding the safety net for women behind bars she writes about how thousands of pregnant women pass through our nation's jails every year she wanted to explore what happens to them as they carry their pregnancies in a space of punishment in this time when the public safety net is frayed incarceration has become a central and racialized strategy for managing the poor Using her ethnographic fieldwork and clinical work as an OBGYN in a women's jail, Carolyn Sufren explores how jail has paradoxically become a place where women can find care. Now, I'll pause there just because I wanted to read this book and interview Carolyn Sufren because oftentimes one of the first questions that abolitionists are asked are, is, you know, what... Will we do without jails? And what, you know where will we bring people to be punished? Where can we isolate people who we don't want in our society? And I think what folks don't realize is the true role that the carceral system plays, especially in low-income communities of color. The U.S. government has so completely disinvested from social welfare. And we see this in particular very recently. The debate has been focused on health care. And uh, this book really outlines the ways in which for so many women, marginalized women, who society has failed, the carceral state is the mechanism by which they receive Any type of health care. It's oftentimes the first time that they're ever receiving prenatal care, uh, is in in the jail setting. And so I encourage you all to read this book just to think more about how jail is not needed, punishment, retributive punishment is not necessary. There are other ways to hold individuals accountable without incapacitating them. And moreover, I think what becomes really clear in the book is that we need to invest in our communities, most saliently through health care. It should be absolutely unacceptable to all of us that for many of the women that Sufrin talked with, the first time that they were receiving any kind of prenatal care was in the jail setting so hope you all enjoy there is much much more coming your way for season three i thank you all so much for sticking with me please if you want to support my work you can donate to the patreon i wanted to shout out the most recent patrons and i just fuck with y'all because you obviously believe that as well and mad mad love to you all I love the Patreon setup because it, in a way, creates a relationship with listeners where you, I'm accountable to you all. You are my producers. I am not trying to sell y'all cap random, <laughs> random products on ads, you know what I mean? And that is because of the patron, you know? So, mad, mad love to the new patrons that have supported the work. Thank you to Maya sirena luis diana farmer you really awesome name <laughs> edber miss antonio olga wow y'all I just, this is so amazing so 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 amazing i was getting these new patrons on the break i love y'all you're amazing claudia diana jamie and elizabeth Thank you all so much. You're my day ones, my rider dies, and I'm really excited to bring you all really amazing lit review content. I'd like to interact more with the patrons, so doing Kachimbona happy hours is also something I'm definitely invested in. The lit review for season three is going to be bomb. I'm going to drop all the books on the Instagram so that you all can read along ahead of time as well and follow along when the episodes come out. I'm super, super excited to be reviewing the work of, to give you all a little preview of some of the texts that I'll be covering on the Lit Review. I'll be interviewing Berkeley Law professor, who's also Salvi, Ian Haney-Lopez about his newest book, Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America, it's a very tall task, but I'm excited to, to uh, have a conversation with him. Also, I am going to read To Rise in Darkness Revolution, Repression, and Memory in El Salvador, written by Jeffrey Gold and Aldos Lauria Santiago. I'm really dedicated to learning more about the 1932 Matanza, the indigenous ethnocide in El Salvador. As well as the ongoing indigenous resistance occurring in El Salvador. And finally, we're going to get into a little bit of sci fi. Really excited to read Salvi author Alexandra Villasante's The Griefkeeper. And that's just a few of the books. So, thank you all so much. If you want to get first access to all of the really bomb literaries that I just mentioned, as a then you can become a lit review patron. As a reminder, the lit Review is where I invite women of color to dissect timely texts over wine, and also, but there will be even the lit review will be even more lit <laughs> this this season because um, apart from the book club style chats with friends of mine, I'll also be actually interviewing the authors of some of these books. So that will be really fun. And thank you to everybody who's reviewed the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It means so much to me. It just, it fuels me to to hear how much you will learn from the podcast and that you'll appreciate it. So if you're feeling like you want to support, please go leave a review. It really, really helps with visibility. Finally, you can follow Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Always posting stuff from the episodes there and trying to start conversation on uh, on those platforms as well. So, yeah, thank you all so much, Cachimbonas, and I hope you all enjoy the interview. Everyone, I am very excited today to have Carolyn Suffren, who is a medical anthropologist and an OBGYN specializing in family planning at Johns Hopkins University, where she is assistant professor in the department of, of OBGYN and the associate director of the Center for Medical Communities and Social Medicine at the School of Medicine. And in health, behavior, and society at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's worked extensively on reproductive health issues affecting incarcerated women, from providing clinical care in jail to research, policy, and advocacy. Her work is situated at the intersection of reproductive justice, healthcare, and mass incarceration which she examines in her book that we'll be talking about today, Jail Care, Finding the Safety Net for Women Behind Bars. Carolyn, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I wanted
0: to ask if you could explain the life context of the women that you interviewed that made it so that jail was actually where these women were first receiving their prenatal care.
1: Sure, um, just a little bit of background too on the, the methods that informed the research of the book that you're, um, and the women whose um, experiences are, are conveyed in it. Um, I, because that's important for being able to convey why, why um, what their background uh, and experiences mm-hmm. were. Um, so uh, I was an OBGYN providing clinical care at the San Francisco jail. And it was working in that environment and being a, a caregiver in a space of punishment in a space of violence. Mm-hmm that prompted me to explore some of these contradictions more deeply. And so I also conducted ethnographic research at this site um, mm-hmm. with uh, people who worked in the jail and of course the people, the women who were incarcerated there. Um, and so I, I, I didn't only interview them. I, I spent time with them in the jail, um, outside of the jail when they, for instance, went to the hospital, um, but also when they got released and were um, back in the community, and then in many cases, unfortunately, when they came back to jail. So there, uh, the experiences of some of these women are what are contained in in the book. And you asked about um, some of the context uh, of these women's lives, and I'll to do that instead of. Uh, generalizing, although I could certainly answer with some demographic characteristics and percentages. Um, but what I'll do instead is tell you a little bit about a woman whom I call um, Evelyn. Um, and she's someone who's uh, who figures uh, very prominently throughout the book. Um, and mm-hmm. Evelyn was a woman whom I first met when she was... Um, in her pregnancy in jail. Uh, The first time I met her, she was in her second trimester. um, And then I I later got to know her better um, a couple of months later when she was towards the end of her pregnancy. And Evelyn was in her early 30s. Um, She had been in and out of jail all of her adult life. And Mm -hmm. so this was not a new thing for her to be in jail. In fact, it wasn't even new to her to be pregnant and in jail. Um, She uh, had two other children she had given birth to, and both of them she had given birth while in custody. So, this was not at all a new experience for her. Um, Evelyn uh, was a Black woman. Um, Her life uh, was, her life experience before I I had met her involved things like um, her parents uh, both struggled with addiction and died when Evelyn was young. And uh, they died of violent, uh, you know, violent causes, um, partly related to their addictions. And so she was left uh, somewhat orphaned, although she had caring family members who who took her in and took care of her. But she also, when she was a young child, um, was abused by another family member, not someone she was living with. She was molested. And that... Um, I wouldn't say that was the only thing that, that triggered her path uh, that led to her in the, the criminal legal system, but it was certainly a major contributing factor because she never got uh, the, the treatment that she needed and the attention and care that she needed for that, that childhood abuse and sexual trauma. And so the consequences of that were that she, she herself struggled with addiction as a way to self-medicate her pain. She um, wound up in and out of group homes and juvenile detention, um eventually, um, you know, living on the streets, being marginally housed and in and out of jail. Um, you know, she she tried a few she tried a few stints in, in programs for youth, uh, for job training, and and um she had her GED and started a community college program, but but um, there were so many other factors that um, made it so hard for her to for her to succeed. Um, some factors that were beyond her control, things like gender-based discrimination, um, racism, uh, so many things that shaped her life. And so, by the time that I met her when she was pregnant with her third child, um, being in jail was not a disruptive experience for her. It was something that was imbricated into the rhythms of her life. She expected that every couple months, every couple weeks, maybe sometimes once or twice a year, but that she would be coming into jail. And she knew what to expect there. She knew that she would Get some medical care. Um, And as she put it, she said, it may not be the best of medical care, but at least it was something. And this was just part of the rhythm of her life. And she lived in a city, San Francisco, which actually has, is known for having a more robust safety net than many other places. And yet, still, her life was um, so, you know, so uprooted and so um, challenging and shaped by so many structural forces of inequity. That for her jail, it was not a fun place to be, but it did provide some relative measure of access to health care and in some cases a little bit of stability, which is very hard to say and very hard to imagine. But that was uh, that was part of her her life experience. Mm. how care differs in that space of punishment? So there are several ways to think about that. One is is just at a a level of healthcare healthcare and healthcare services delivery. So I'll give a little bit of background about that. Um, There's a really interesting legal background which some of your listeners may be aware of, some may not, but incarcerated people are actually the only people in our country with a constitutional right to healthcare. Let that sink in for a moment. So these are people who, by design, are intentionally stripped of most of their rights when they become incarcerated, and yet they gain this right that they don't have, that we don't have when we are when they are not uh, in custody. And that's based on the 1976 Supreme Court case Estelle versus Gamble, where the Supreme Court, in the particular case that came to them, they actually said, in this case, actually the the incarcerated person did get the care. Uh, did get appropriate medical care, but they used this allegation of inadequate medical care to say that that the, and this is a direct quote, deliberate indifference to the serious medical needs of prisoners, end quote, is a violation of the Eighth Amendment. It is cruel and unusual punishment. So based on that... Very um, relevant to today. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) prisons, jails, and other institutions of incarceration are constitutionally mandated to address people's serious medical needs. Now, those phrases, deliberate indifference and serious medical needs, are not specific. And so since 1976, there has uh, been a proliferation of of efforts, uh, perhaps not enough, to provide, um, I shouldn't say perhaps not enough, it is not enough, um, to provide uh, more systematized healthcare services to incarcerated people. However, um, there is no mandatory system of or set of standards, and there is no mandatory system of oversight and accountability for healthcare services in prisons and jails across the country. And so, discretion and variability are the norm. And you get some jails and prisons that provide actually reasonably good healthcare, and other jails where it's other jails and prisons where it's substandard, non-existent, or even harmful. And so it can look like a variety of things with contracts with private companies, care that's administered through a department of public health. Um, Depending on the size of the institution, they might have um, physicians, advanced practice clinicians like nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, um, nurses, nurses. Medical assistance, a variety of healthcare providers um, who provide uh, a variety of healthcare services on site. Other places where they uh, don't even have a healthcare provider on site, and for every healthcare need, have to be someone has to be taken off site to a nearby hospital or clinic. So it's really highly variable, uh, and just it, it's different from one jail, one prison to another. So in terms of what care looks like in a space of punishment, um, it's from the healthcare services delivery perspective. Um, there's a lot of variability in terms of what um, medications, healthcare services, preventative, emergent care is provided and what even the systems of accessing that care is. There are even there are many places also that charge um, incarcerated people a co-payment in order to see a healthcare provider on site. Um, you know, it might seem nominal to some, $5, um, but for people who um, already don't have much money when they are not incarcerated and then they are incarcerated and if they work, get very, they have pennies, um, it's really prohibited, prohibited. Now, the second, uh, an, a second way to think about your question, what is care like in a space of punishment is, is on a more, um, Conceptual level of what care is, um, and it can look like a lot of different things. Right. And what I observed in my research, and you know, also reminding the viewers, I myself was a caregiver at the jail, so um, interpret my my words with that positionality in mind. Um, that I was. A caregiver myself, so on the one hand, I have some firsthand experience with that, but I did not receive care. So, um, you know, just remind your your listeners that um, that I have that that um, that positionality. But care can look like a lot of different things, and it can mean. um, It can mean a gesture. It can mean addressing a a patient in a certain way. What I found when I first started working at the San Francisco jail is, you know, and I'd never been in this environment before. I've never been incarcerated myself. A white woman uh, who, you know, with a a privileged background and don't have anyone in in my life who is directly impacted by incarceration. So I came in with very little context. Um, uh, But that being said, I... Treated, you know, this was another clinic, and I treated the patients I saw there as I would anyone else in 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 many respects. And so, when I would first meet someone in the examination room, I would say, "Hello, Miss Smith. I'm Dr. Suffren. It's nice to meet you. How can I help you today?" And I would shake her hand and look her in the eye. And I noticed that that oftentimes people were a little taken aback by that um, or surprised, and they, you know, they they were used to being referred to as as inmates. Or as a number or just by their last name, um, and not even asked, how can I help you today? And I say this not to say I'm so great. I treat people with respect, but, um, uh, but to point out that, uh, that sometimes some basic things of, of, of engaging with a person as a person can be experienced as a, as, as a feeling cared for and, and listened to. And, and this environment of punishment and deprivation and what some people call dehumanization makes those sorts of things be part of care what i would also say to answer this uh, answer that question is that i was also what what i was also surprised by in my my research is that the the lines of what might get experienced as care or who who may be providing these, these more subtle gestures, it's not necessarily what you would expect. Some people might expect that healthcare providers in a jail would be the ones to be caring and compassionate um, as defined in opposition to this environment of punishment and, and violence, and that the custody officers would be the ones who were hierarchical and abusive and uncaring. And what I found was that the lines were a lot more blurred. And there were sometimes... Um, healthcare professionals who who were harsh and and didn't show um, you know didn't showed the, that they'd been influenced by being in that environment. And I saw many custody officers, not all by any means, but I did see many custody officers who showed some compassion and kindness, and who with whom people like Evelyn had cultivated relationships over their years in and out of jail. And I don't mean sexual relationships, although that does happen. Um, I I just mean a sense of familiarity um, and um, I don't want to say trust. I think that might be taking it too far, but familiarity and sometimes comfort. And I observed this, for instance, when I saw custody officers providing support to um, a woman going through a miscarriage in jail and she found, this woman found support from the guard that she didn't find from any of the healthcare providers. So obviously, I could talk about this question of, of what does care look like in this space for a long time. I wrote a whole book about it, but um, but I'll pause there <laughs> to see if you have follow up questions on, on on that topic or others.
0: Yeah, that's really great. Can you, so you talked about how care varies so much between jails and prisons because of a lack of oversight mechanisms. So you can have somebody at a facility that does have a medical clinic on site or that c- doesn't it all? Can you speak to the role of privatization of healthcare in these facilities, the profit motives behind that, and how that
1: impacts the care that people receive? Absolutely. Uh, just a, a basic level, the idea that there are companies that profit off of incarcerating people is. Is very troubling, and I'm sure um, if you're, if people are listening to this show, this is probably something that they've they've thought about. And so, uh, you know, it is certainly troubling, especially when you're talking about healthcare, which you know is something that if you're incarcerated and you need to see a healthcare professional, you don't have any choice of where to go. You rely on what is there, and so the quality and quantity of those services is, you know, you rely on that as your your lifeline. Um, you don't have any other other choice. And so what it looks like for prisons or jails or other institutions that contract out to private companies, you know, it is, there is variability as well. Um, And it's hard to make generalizations that it is the healthcare that private companies provide is always bad because that's that's not universally always the case. If they have, you know, a, a good arrangement and and committed providers and you know, are committed to the mission and they have good oversight to make sure they're following through, you know, there are ways in which it can be it can be a a fine option to provide reasonable health care. But that is I that is not universally the, the case that you that you find that. And so what the way these contracts work is a Department of Corrections or a jail will say, okay, these are the healthcare services that, that we have decided we're going to provide um, through our jail and and we are going to put this request for proposals out and the handful of private prisoner jail health companies that exist. You guys can can battle it out for the contract um, and we'll award it to, you know, to the best company who gives it to us for the least amount of money. So there is an incentive right off the bat for these companies to look at, okay, we have to provide all these things. How can we add up the numbers to do it for as little money as possible so we can, you know, maximize our profits from this, from this contract amount. And so so right off the bat you have that that logic that's, that's informing contract. And we see it, although it hasn't been studied in a systematic fashion nationwide, we do know that, that some of these companies like Horizon, which is the biggest, they have thousands and thousands of lawsuits for inadequate care. In
0: Arizona, the Parsons lawsuit. Oh, in Arizona, there's the long-standing Parsons yes, lawsuit exactly. against the Arizona Department of Corrections. Yep.
1: Yes. And examples like that, where the state, you know, the the courts have put a prison system or a local jail in receivership or with through a consent decree, um, you know, because uh, of inadequate care provided through a private corporation. There are a lot of examples of that. So it's, um, you know, again, I don't want to generalize because there are some some arrangements where it. You could conceive that it might be it might be reasonable amount of care, but there are certainly incentives for these private corporations to streamline their services um, and uh, and focus on things so that they can maximize their profits.
0: Yeah, thank you for giving that context and for focusing on Horizon, that it definitely, you know, like you said, has long, has lawsuits all over the country and do want to point out the complicity of the lawyers who defend them because it's a cash cow for them as well. So you were speaking earlier about Evelyn and how she's a survivor of sexual violence. And so I wanted to Kind of tease out the how the punishment system intersects with survivors of sexual violence and how that context
1: exacerbates traumas mm, great question. well, we know that all incarcerated people have higher rates of, of per- experiencing personal trauma than Than non incarcerated people, but that rate is exceptional, exceedingly higher for incarcerated women um, than for incarcerated men. It is also transgendered individuals also have high rates of, of. Experiencing prior trauma and violence, but I'm going to speak specifically about women. So estimates are up to uh, that up to 90% of incarcerated women have experienced prior trauma and violence. 90%. So it is just the norm for so many of these people, for so many people who uh, women who are enmeshed in this system, as was true for Evelyn. And really, uh, that 90% definitely resonates from my experience as a healthcare provider in jail and what my patients. Uh, their experiences were that they at least the ones that even disclosed it to me, um, and so what that looks like i mean evelyn unfortunately her um, her life experience is uh, is I don't want to say typical because she isn't, she's not typical. She is a, a, her own person, but it's common that surviving sexual violence, and it's oftentimes not just one episode, and it wasn't that way for Evelyn as well. I mean, as an adult, she too, she, she was also the victim of sexual violence, but in ways that she might not have labeled it as such because she was accustomed to it. But the sexual violence and other traumas they experience. As with Evelyn's case, it sometimes can lead them to a struggle with addiction and have other mental health mental health issues. It can lead them to turn to, to underground economies to help support them. In some cases, you know, some people in self-defense as as victims of, of intimate partner violence, they may they may be perpetrators of violence themselves in order to defend themselves and wind up in the criminal legal system for that reason. So there are just so many overlaps in terms of the pathways that lead many women to be involved in the criminal legal system and also their, their life experiences of, of trauma. So what does that look like when they're incarcerated? Well, incarceration is itself traumatic and so layering that trauma on top of their prior trauma it's it compounds you might call it re-traumatization but it's 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 more just part of the, the trauma that often is the background to, to people's lives in many cases. But it ha- also has very specific manifestations when it comes to uh, reproductive health care, which as an OBGYN is, is a lot of what I, I do. Pelvic exams can be, can be re-traumatizing for survivors of sexual violence. This is true whether you're incarcerated or not, but it's especially since it's just so widely prevalent in this setting, um is something to be very cognizant of and so avoiding unnecessary pelvic exams doing pelvic exams in a way that is trauma informed and that that takes the steps to acknowledge someone's trauma that help give her control in the situation where she might might feel out of control and avoiding unnecessary pelvic exams. And one example that comes to mind with that, is, and this gets back to the lack of standardization of healthcare, um, especially women's healthcare, which has been neglected in, in very distinctive ways. But uh, think about screening for cervical cancer, which is done through a pap smear. And a pap smear, in order to do a pap smear, generally you have to insert a speculum, which can be a Retraumatizing experience, especially for people uh, who are, have histories of sexual trauma, and you know, one thing that I've observed is, and this was not necessarily in the research for my book, but but in other policy work and research that I've done, is that there are actually many prisons uh, that. Have Pap smears built into their uh, routine? Pap smears built into their um, healthcare policy protocols, which is good. They should have preventative healthcare. That's great. However, a lot of these um, a lot of these services are often not in line with uh, and up to date with national standards. And there, and what I mean by that is that they um, recommend or not recommend. They require a Pap smear every year. And that used to be how often they were done 20 years ago, but the guidelines change and pap smears should be done every three to five years, depending on the age of someone and should stop at the age of 65. And yet many prisons are doing this every year, uh, in part because, you know, it's, it's easier to have, they think, to have a standard uh, rolling policy and it's easier to keep track on a yearly basis, maybe. Also, I think perhaps it makes them feel like they're doing women's health to do pap smears. But in reality, that is unnecessary and invasive and can be re-traumatizing. So that's just one example of the overlaps between healthcare and trauma as it specifically plays out for, for women who are incarcerated.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for shedding light on that. I think it's super important that people know that it's very troubling that that's systematically happening still. Yeah. So you spoke to the fact that in, in this context there of trauma Many people have turned to self-medicating, and so I wanted to segue into talking about the role of the war on drugs and its, its role specifically in the increase of incarceration rates for women in the last 40 or so years.
1: Yeah. So um, the so-called war on drugs um, has played played a, a, a particularly important role in mass incarceration. Although I want to be clear, and I uh, you know citing the work of legal scholars and political scientists like Marie Gottschalk and John Pfaff, that that the war on drugs is not the sole contributor or the largest contributor to the explosion of the number of people behind bars in the U.S. But in part, the ethos of it, the turn to punishment instead of instead of rehabilitation instead of recognizing or, or I should say the over reliance on uh, confinement and incarceration and punishment as a means of social control rather than recognizing addiction and poverty and other things uh, as as things that need to be addressed through health care mental health care and other social safety net services that that ethos and that that uh, turn to how we rely on incarceration that is part and parcel of the war on drugs is, is absolutely part of the picture. And so what does this mean for women? Well, women have been disproportionately impacted by this ethos and by the policies, the draconian policies of the war on drugs and the, the turn towards uh, criminalization of drug addiction uh, and what comes with it rather than treating it. And we can see that in part manifested Through the numbers, Um, women have been the fastest growing segment of the incarcerated population for decades, and they continue to be as such. In fact, the latest report published by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which is um, a branch of the Department of Justice, they just published their their annual survey of jails uh, just a month ago. And from 2008 to 2018, there was an overall uh, decline of, uh, of the number of people in jails. And uh, when you break it down by sex, um, that was nine percent decline over ten years for men, but it was a fifteen percent increase increase for women so it wasn 't that it was a smaller decrease for women than it was for men, it was that women are going up, and so this is again part of uh, there are many factors of course, but this reflects these ongoing trends in the, crim- the criminalization of poverty and drug use that uh, have accompanied the so-called war on drugs. This has had a particularly distinctive impact on the lives of, uh, of women of color, especially Black women. And I want to give a shout out to the recent book Policing the Womb by Michelle Goodwin, which is a really uh, a detailed, meticulous account of how the Black women's bodies and the bodies of other women of color, the, the reproductive bodies are devalued in, in so many different ways um, that they're, they are over-policed, over-incarcerated, and prevented from, from having children in safety, for, prevented from ending pregnancies they don't want, prevented, prevented from preventing pregnancies. In so many ways, their bodies are are the subject of so much criminalization where they're incarcerated um, uh, for things like fetal endangerment uh, for substance use um, in ways that, that uh, white women are, are not. So this plays out in, in very particular ways uh, for women that in, in part has to do with the stigma and uh, the moral valence that our society Ascribes to the fetus and as and to women as reprodu, reproducers and vessels for that fetus, and that play that trickles down into how we punish women for so-called bad behavior in pregnancy um, and in other parts of their reproductive lives. When in fact, when what so many women need is treatment, we need a broader social safety net services in order to support healthy reproduction and avoiding reproduction when they don't want it you
0: for shedding light on those intersections between reproductive justice and incarceration and that book recommendation, Placing the Womb, sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to check that out. I wanted to also, because I, do, I am a lawyer and do focus a bit on case law on the podcast, wanted to also how you speak on the increased usage of jails within California after Brown versus Plata?
1: Yeah, so I can speak generally about that, which is so your listeners may be familiar with Brown v. Plata, a Supreme Court case, the culmination of of several um, that was started as a medical malfeasance case against the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation based on the the excessive um, number of deaths that was that were occurring in custody, and it was. It was determined that these were due to inadequate health care. And the courts, you know, gave all these opportunities I shouldn't say opportunities, but directives and, and orders to the state to improve their health care system and the efforts they had undertaken weren't enough. And so the courts said, okay, fine. You couldn't do it by fixing services on the inside. You have to depopulate your prisons um, to take, you know, so that you can better address the health needs of the people who are there and your system isn't uh, so overcrowded and, and overtaxed. Um, so this charge to depopulate the prisons by approximately thirty. 30- thousand people in a, a, you know, a several year time period became known in California or became codified in a law called realignment that the state system was to realign with the, with the communities. And and the the sentiment um, as sort of, I've learned about it is, is that, you know, it was intended in part to shift, or it was hoped that this would um, shift more people to be under community supervision. It could also shift, you know, more of the burden to people being supervised in jails. But there was, you know, there was no directive that said you have to transfer people from prison to jail. But that is, in many county or in many uh, jurisdictions, what ended up happening. And so, instead, the the jails, which most of which were already overcrowded, became more. Crowded, more overcrowded, and okay, maybe people were closer to home, closer to where their families were, but um, the conditions in jails um, were not necessarily any better. And jails are certainly not equipped to handle people for long, long sentences. And uh, and some people who were transferred to jail under realignment were, you know, were still serving out sentences that were that were longer than a year. And so, what happened in, in California as a as a result of realignment and brown beat? was not necessarily the investment in community-based alternatives that, that it had the promise to be. And when it comes to how that impacted healthcare, I have not seen, you know, I have not, I have not been following how that has played out over the last nine years um, in jails. Um, in California, I no longer live in California, and I'm less uh, less uh, directly in touch with what what is happening on the ground at jails. But but I do know that this was not the, the spark to improve conditions um, or depopulation that I think it was it was hoped to be. But what it did show us, is, which many people already knew, but but really highlighted, was just the deep connections between health. Healthcare, well-being, and uh, and the ways that systems of punishment really um, erode those possibilities. Thank you for that. That historical context is really
0: important. So, um, I'm actually curious about the population of people that were in the San Francisco jail and where they were at in their cases what percentage of people were pre-trial detainees and how many people were serving out sentences?
1: At the time that I did my research for this book, about three quarters of people were pre-trial, which is uh, similar to many other um, jails across the, many, especially many urban jails across the country. I, of the remaining, I, I don't know um, which proportion were serving sentences versus awaiting sentencing versus awaiting transfer to um, to prison or or probation violations, but most people there were pretrial, as is the case throughout the country. And I think this speaks again to to how we need to really think critically about the role that we have given to jails in our country. And this is where, and this is one of the main points um, I, I try to get across in the book, is to really think of jails and prisons as separate Institutions. Now, of course, there are overlaps. Um, these are institutions of deprivation, of punishment, of incarceration, um, but they're very different in a lot of ways in the roles that they play in our society. And the fact that so many people are held in local jails in this country because they can't afford their bail is, is, you know, exemplary of the way we have criminalized poverty. And I think we're seeing a harsh light being shed on this right now in the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, as, as various agencies, public officials, advocacy organizations have have called for depopulation of our prisons and jails, we've seen the different, in some ways, the, the different roles and reasons and the way it's played out for jails as opposed to prisons and in my own region for instance in Baltimore the the state's attorney for Baltimore very early on stopped prosecuting people for certain low-level um, offenses and also changed the rules about who would be held in jail pre-trial um, and people who were arrested on uh, for minor charges which they were already trying to uh, curtail arrests for were not being held. Uh, simply because they couldn't couldn't afford their bail. So changes that have happened um, in Baltimore and in other jurisdictions as a, a public health measure in response to the the COVID nineteen pandemic really shine a light on on the way that our jails are 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 holding places um, in a lot of ways. And since I'm talk- talking about the pandemic and and what uh, it has shown us about jails and prisons, but especially jails, is they are these are not Isolated institutions that are elsewhere, right. um, outside of society, they are in constant flux. And it's because of the people who are incarcerated in part, and especially in jail. You know, the average length of stay in jail is 25 days. And I've already also alluded to people like Evelyn who come in and out frequently, but it's also the people who work there who are coming in and out every day. And so, and this is one of the the points too that I make about uh, in in my research in jail care is that we cannot think of jails as separate institutions. They are part of our community's fabric.
0: Yeah, and kind of unfortunately so. And I, I asked the question about pretrial detainees just to highlight that the unfairness of the fact that an individual like Evelyn gets her health care from this it's I've heard uh people frame bail as a ransom as akin to a ransom because to be pre-trial means that you have been charged with something but you have not had your trial and you have not your guilt has not been adjudicated Mm -hmm. and so I think that's why I I do appreciate the the distinctions between jail and prisons for that reason because it's 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 either way unacceptable for a conviction to be a death sentence from COVID. Mm-hmm. But for folks in jail, it's, it's, it is, it, I don't want to compare the egregiousness of the violations, but it is it, in a system that talks about innocent until proven guilty. It's mm-hmm. very egregious that mm-hmm. That this is the function of jails in our society is, is housing poor folks who have mental health issues, who have addiction issues, and who are poor and who can't pay their bail. Yeah. So Carolyn, actually, those are all the questions that I wanted to ask you, I wanted to thank you for this really great conversation and ask if you had,
1: if you wanted to add anything that you felt like we didn't touch on. This was a great conversation. And I thank you so much for asking these questions and, and highlighting the the work in, in my book. And so I think I've, I've said a lot of these things, but I just do want to emphasize for listeners to remember the the gendered specific issues um, of our system of mass incarceration and the ways that um, mass incarceration itself disrupts the core principles of reproductive justice, not only for women, but for people of all genders. And to remember that um, that jails are, are integrated into our society and people who are in them uh, are people who are part of our community, and we have an obligation to think about them, to care about them, um, and to rethink the ways that um, our society over relies on jails uh, and prisons.
0: Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much, and I hope to have you on the podcast again. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too.